This particular presentation is on tuberculosis control and prevention in resource-limited areas. My name is Clydette Powell. I serve as a medical officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. I'm based out of Washington, D.C. I have worked there for almost 11 years in the Division of Infectious Disease, and almost all of my time is spent on TB control and prevention in developing countries. As some of you may know, I also spend some of my time on human trafficking, um, as well as civilian military coordination in health. But the majority of my responsibilities lie within TB control and prevention. I served as a medical missionary in Cambodia for a few years with World Vision International. Um, but I really got my start in public health and missions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, with Dr. Dan Fountain, who is here, and he really is the person who infected me with a passion for um, public health. And um, pardon? No, with TB, no. <laughs> That's true. Um, although we did have TB clinics there in Bonga, and. Um, Anyway, I'm really grateful for that, and I just love to acknowledge Dan, and I would encourage you, if you are not like me catching a plane right after the presentation, that you just sidle up to Dan and uh, just take good advantage of this wonderful man who has years, decades of experience and, uh, and get to know him better. And I see some other faces that I also am grateful for in my, in my career. I also want to mention that this is, in a sense, part two of a two-part series. I gave a part one on tuberculosis on Thursday afternoon. And it would be helpful to have just a quick show of hands of who attended that, so I'll know kind of what to speed through and what to... So there are a few people, but there are some new TB wannabes this early Saturday morning, so that's very helpful. All right, let's go ahead and... Move ahead. Just as an overview for the session, we'll talk about the burden of TB disease and some areas of challenge, both technical challenges as well as programmatic challenges. Um, we'll do a little TB 101. I know it's very difficult for both an audience and a speaker for everybody to be on the same level. There are probably people up here who are more qualified in, in TB diagnostics and treatment than I am, but I recognize that there are also younger people earlier in their career path who need to understand. And I'll try to hit kind of a middle ground. Um, if anybody is nodding off, I totally understand. <laughs> um, but I just want to be able to cover as many levels as I can. We'll talk a little bit about some of the innovations in diagnostics and drugs uh, and vaccines. And uh, I have scattered throughout this talk some questions for you so that you just don't sit here and take it all in, but I engage you in some of the points. And then we'll close with some resources. Obviously, within the space of 40 minutes, I cannot cover everything nor answer everybody's question. And many times I don't know the answer to some questions, and so I want to be able to point you in a direction where you can uh, go for those answers. Let's just start with some of the basics. I talk about sort of the one-third, one-third and that is one-third of the world is infected with TB. And what does infection with TB mean? It, there's a difference between exposure, infection, and active disease. So somebody who is infected is somebody who has been exposed um, but may not be may, is not symptomatic. They'll have a positive skin test. Um, they'll have an, a negative chest X-ray. 
but they have about a 10% lifetime risk of that infection becoming active disease. And if that person is HIV positive, that is a 10% rate every year of um, becoming an active case of TB. And why do we care about infected cases? Because infected cases, a positive skin test, is not an infectious case. So if I cough during this particular lecture, I'm not spewing forth bacilli. Um, but So why do we care about people who are infected with TB? And that's because they sometimes become the reservoir for active TB. If they become malnourished, if they become HIV positive, if they're immunosuppressed in some other way through cancer or diabetes, etc., um, that case may be, uh, that infection may turn into an active case. And treatment of active TB is actually critical to prevent new cases because we're mostly looking for the sputum smear positive cases, the pulmonary cases that are coughing and transmitting the mycobacteria into the, as aerosolized droplets um, and the kinds of things that, you know, we could inhale. And within this, the World Health Organization years ago developed something called directly observed treatment short course. That's what DOTS stands for. And this is the WHO recommended, approved, and evidence-based method for TB control and prevention around the world. It's not everywhere. Over the years, there has been increasing coverage of DOTS, um, but it still needs to be expanded and strengthened. And then the other word, one-third, I want to mention is that one in three people with HIV will develop TB. In fact, TB and HIV are... Um, in sort of an unhappy marriage relationship. And um, TB is the number one killer of HIV AIDS patients, and prevention of HIV is crucial to control TB, just as prevention of TB is crucial to um, the, the uh, care of people who are HIV positive. Now, just some basic facts about TB. It's contagious and spreads through the air. I think we all know that. If not treated, each person with active TB can infect an average of 10 to 15 people a year. So, for example, if I had active TB and were coughing throughout this conference, there would be a lot of um, positive skin tests and chest x-rays at the end of the weekend, but perhaps not known until several months later. More than 2 billion people, or one-third of the world's population, are infected with TB bacilli, and that's the reservoir, as I mentioned. And one in 10 of those people will become sick with active TB in his or her lifetime, as I mentioned, a 10% risk. <clears throat> TB is generally a disease of poverty, um, mostly affecting young adults in their most productive years, although there is congenital TB. There is TB in children and infants. Um, and unfortunately, the vast majority of TB deaths are in the developing world, with more than half occurring in Asia. And I'll show you some pie charts to support that statement. And again, as I mentioned, TB is a leading killer among people living with HIV who are immunosuppressed. TB is a worldwide pandemic. Um, I am sad to say that because TB has been around since 5000 B.C. There is proof in... Egyptian mummies and Peruvian mummies, etc., that TB existed. And we know that TB even affected the Israelites because it's recorded as the fiery consumption uh, um, by Moses in Deuteronomy. 
Among the 15 countries with the highest estimated TB incidence rates, 13 are in Africa. But one-third of all the new cases are in India and China, and this is in part just a population pressure where there are just so many people who live in India and China that we would expect that a lot of cases would come from that part of the world. Multidrug-resistant TB is a TB that does not respond to what's called first-line treatment. So these are cases that are uh, resistant to isoniazid uh, rifampicin. And it's present in essentially all the countries that have been surveyed. Not all the countries have reported MDR or even extensively drug-resistant, but uh, unfortunately MDR is here and is troubling for TB programs that are just getting on their weak and spindly legs. XDR occurs whenever resistant to both the, the second-line drugs, so both isoniazid and rifampicin and um, fluoroquinolone, uh, within the second-line uh, treatment regimen. It's the eighth leading cause of death, TB is, and among the three greatest causes of death in women aged 15 to 44. In fact, in some countries, there's great concern about infertility due to TB in the reproductive system. All right, now, enough of my chatting. I'm going to give you a little wake-up call here for a question. The question is, among the following people, who did not contract TB in their lifetime? Robert Louis Stevenson, Nelson Mandela, Frederick Chopin, or Eleanor Roosevelt? Who of these four did not contract TB in their lifetime? Any early morning guesses? Here. They all did. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Actually, the story about Eleanor Roosevelt's TB is an interesting one. It wasn't diagnosed until uh, she had actually died, and doctors at the White House had not really elucidated the reason for her death. There's an interesting article in the Journal for the International Union Against TB and Lung Disease. So if you Google Eleanor Roosevelt and the Union Journal, um, you'll be able to find that story. But I think people find it very surprising. Now, somebody has been coughing. I heard a cough just a moment ago. They could have TB, although I, I'm hoping not. And so, you know, what is the likelihood of your contracting TB in such a case. So let's explore this a little bit. <clears throat> and I'll ask you another question. So which of the following is most responsible for facilitating the transmission of tuberculosis? Is it A, undiagnosed sputum smear positive cases, B, crowding in prisons, C, malnutrition, and D, HIV positive status? So which of these, A, B, C, or D, is most responsible for facilitating transmission? A. Oh, I hear some very confident A's out there, and they are right. Did you see my presentation? <laughs> I actually, I've never asked an audience this question, so those who answered correctly are truly knowledgeable. Certainly crowding in prison, uh, malnutrition, and HIV positivity uh, do... Um, are associated, but they in themselves do not facilitate the transmission of TB. It's really those undiagnosed sputum smear positive cases. Now, um, 
when I look at this, I have to admit that it looks to me like Tiger Woods. Uh, <laughs> but um, I don't, this is not meant to be any comment about that famous golfer, uh, but simply to I illustrate some very basic anatomy. And that is that uh, it is inhaling these, these aerosolized droplets that contain the mycobacteria, that inhaling them, um, lodging in the lungs, and um, in some instances developing a granuloma or even further disease leading to cavitation um, and lymphadenopathy, etc. But sometimes I say to people, you know, if you're worried about getting TB, then I propose you take a deep breath and hold it and hold it and hold it. <laughs> because there's no way of getting around the fact that there is TB transmitted. It, there have been re, uh, reports of TB transmission on airplanes. Um, there was that famous or infamous case about Andrew Spector, who had multidrug-resistant TB, who flew from Europe to the States, etc. Um, for all of us who work in developing countries, I doubt if there's anybody who has not had a crowded bus ride or been in a, a marketplace where everybody is milling around. It's everywhere. The World Health Organization designates 22 countries as high burden countries, and they represent 80% of the global TB burden. So it's disturbing that at like roughly one-tenth of all the official countries in the world, they account for 80% of um, all the TB cases. Now, there are a little less than 9 million new TB cases of this most recent year reporting cycle and um, about one and a half, 1.4 million deaths. This is actually good news in a sense because these rates are going down. And if you attended the Thursday afternoon session or if you get the recording or online, it's probably the best way to see the PowerPoint presentations because I presented the World Health Organization's hot off the press data on the trends of incidence, prevalence, and mortality. But you'll see here that a lot of the countries, and this, act, this map actually needs some updating, but you see that you know, it's in all the hemispheres as high burden countries, uh, predominantly in Africa and Asia. This table just gives you a sense of how many cases and how many deaths, which I just mentioned, and then the issue of TB, HIV-associated TB. So it's estimated that about 13% of all the cases of uh, TB also have HIV, but there are countries where, and cities, for example, where maybe 50, 60, 70% of the TB cases are HIV, HIV positive. So this is just really a global um, mean. And then it's thought that there are possibly as many as uh, 390,000 deaths uh, of TB, HIV positive co-infected cases. In terms of multi-drug resistant TB, it's estimated that there are about 650,000 cases uh, of MDR um, a very small number of those have been notified officially, and um, an even smaller number have been on treatment, probably about 55,000 of them. So we have a huge way to go in MDR-TB in terms of um, diagnosing it and getting it on treatment. And MDR could be a lecture in itself because it's a much more complicated uh, TB regimen. 
As I mentioned, most of the TB cases are in Asia and Africa, with more than one-third of them being just in two countries, India and China, and a quarter of them um, being just in India alone. And TB deaths are uh, somewhat similar, about a third of the cases in India and China, but actually of that 35%, 30% of it is in India. China has made tremendous strides in their TB control and prevention. Again, that would be a whole lecture in itself to tease out what the Chinese government has done and for which they are to be commended. This particular map just shows some of the distribution of MDR-TB. Again, you can see a lot of it is in the former Soviet Union, um, but it also is in uh, Eastern Europe. And um, it's, of course, I should say that uh, sometimes it is politically sensitive to report MDR-TB or extensively drug-resistant, or simply developing country labs do not have the capacity to do the culture and drug sensitivity testing. So, um, again, there's more happening than, than we can appreciate. One of the things you cannot appreciate on this map is the tiny island of Hispaniola and the country of the Dominican Republic, which has a lot of MDR. And I noticed on the pushpin map downstairs that there were a whole lot of pushpins on the DR. So just keep that in mind. There's a lot of MDR-TB within the Dominican Republic, sort of in our, our back. And Haiti, but MDR more so in, right now in, uh, in the DR. And part of that is lab capacity. So. And there's a lot of cross-border activity, too, between the two countries. And that's another story in itself, how country, you know, what binational uh, programs actually can achieve or not. I'll just mention briefly, um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic have had hard, uh, have had challenges coordinating the care because they've had different treatment regimens. And there's a lot of um, porosity of the border and uh, for a variety of sort of socio-political and economic reasons. Just a quick nod to HIV being an important driver of the TB epidemic. And you can see on, the, on this particular graph, that it really started to move upward in the early 90s and in some countries was just astronomical in terms of the notification rates. Um, Zimbabwe is represented in that red line. Zimbabwe also is a case uh, success story in that they have really aggressively approached the HIV issues in that country. A lot of voluntary counseling and testing. Uh, Bush's uh, presidential emergency plan for AIDS relief, also known as PEPFAR, has really moved in to provide antiretroviral therapy. And that is good news for a country that um, I love. Okay, another question for you. And you, everybody should get this one right, because I think I've told you the answer. Without preventive TB measures, and on average, how many people infected with HIV will develop TB? One in five, one in four, one in three, one in two? Yes, C. Okay. All right, so we still have work to do. As I said, this you know, disease has been around, rattling around in people's lungs and other parts of their bodies for centuries. So where are the missing cases of TB? I mean, what's happening with us that, you know, we can't get a handle on this disease? Well, where are these missing cases? Well, in a variety of corners, um, the marginalized, the outcast, the prisoner, with these photos here shown. Also, those who are not entering the public health system, because it is the World Health Organization, uh, donor agencies, NGOs, 
uh, working with the public health system. But the private health sector is another matter. Um, anybody can set up their, their shingle, so to speak. And actually, private providers do a good job. But the problem is they're often not linked into the public health sector. And how many of you as healthcare professionals keep track of the patients who don't show up in your clinic? It's difficult. It's difficult to track the no-shows and the non-responders. And uh, some private practitioners will make a diagnosis simply based on a clinical picture. Um, they may not do sputum smear microscopy. They may not have the lab. They, or they may have a lab and, you know, they've got this arrangement not CLIA approved, um, where they do sputum microscopy. But the problem is they get someone started on treatment, and TB drugs should be for free. So many times populations don't know that they could get the drugs for free, or there's such a stigma about TB that they don't want to go into the public health sector and admit that they have a disease of poverty. But they get started on treatment, not always on the correct treatment protocols, and then they start to feel better after a few weeks, and then nobody has come alongside them and said, hey, you know, this is four drugs for your first two months, um, and then two drugs for the other four months. So what happens is that the private sector doesn't have the network of community health volunteers, lady health workers, accompagnateurs, etc., to continue uh, to come alongside them as the directly observed treatment and make sure that they see the course to completion. Lots of problems there. So one of the things that has been developed is called PAL, um, P-A-L, Practical Approach to Lung Health, noting that about a third of all the patients who come into a primary health care center come in for some kind of respiratory problem. It's, I mean, it's not just TB. It could be other things. But um, the push from PAL is to do early triage so that if you come in and, the, you know, the first desk you're coming to and they say, you know, what's, you know, why have you come? And they say, oh, I have a cough. That person is immediately triaged into another area. In some, uh, in Liberia last year, I saw that the community health workers had a little, um, had like a three-by-five card that was laminated, and it just had a picture of a person bending over and coughing. And so if the community health uh, workers in Liberia suspected a case, they gave this card, and they said, you get to go to the front of the line. So it made those TB suspects feel special. It meant that they didn't have to wait in a crowded waiting room, and it got them directly off to a professional, and then to the laboratory. So I thought that was a great, simple system. The lab collected the cards and then just recycled them back to the community health worker. So that, in a form, in one form, was PAL. So it's not rocket science, but it's a very good idea. It has a public health soundness to it that um, I certainly commend. The priorities of TB control are earlier case detection. Um, this is important not only for the individual, but also for the community. Uh, TB is sort of a social disease, and loosely say, you know, it's a disease of the community. So when communities understand that it's not just about setting aside somebody with TB, but everybody pulls together, you know, they see that person in the marketplace, they could encourage them, how are you doing, are you still on your treatment, etc. In Angola, I remember talking with a, a health center and saying, you know, how do you get out into the community with these TB patients that you 
initially diagnose and start on treatment, they said, oh, we are networked with the Catholic sisters, the nuns. And they said, these nuns are formidable. They know where everybody lives. And, you know, no TB patient will go, you know, undiagnosed or not complete a treatment. And the sisters, of course, you know, they're dressed up as nuns, so it's very clear what they're up to. They are then linked with the parish priests. And periodically the parish priests will get up in the pulpit because the nuns will say, I have not found Joan Fernando. And so then the parish priest will announce to his congregation, has anybody seen Joan? Because the sisters are looking for them. They don't say what it's about. Um, You know, there's that confidentiality. And somebody may come up later after the Mass and say, oh, Father, you know, Joan is in prison or Joan has moved to Luanda or da-da-da. So it's, you know, again, this is where you get the community involved. And, you know, it doesn't add to your budget, but it certainly adds to the success of your program. So making sure that TB treatment is completed and um, the dictum has always been, you know, don't start the drugs unless you're sure that you've got all the pieces in place so that you're not uh, creating multi-drug resistant because of treatment adherence. And I want to say that we tend not to use the word compliance. Um, we talk about adherence to treatment, and we don't just say it's the patient's responsibility to take their meds. It's everybody's responsibility. If a patient succeeds or fails, everybody can you know, rejoice or grieve. In fact, again, at this center in Angola, they periodically had parties for all the TB patients who had completed treatment. They had little tea and cakes and things. They made up official certificates for the TB patients who had completed their treatment, and people proudly showed that. It was also helpful for uh, their employment. So good ideas. Question back for you. Whose discovery do we celebrate on March 24th as World TB Day? A. Charles Drew, B. Robert Koch, C. Christian Barnard, or D. Jonas Salk? Yeah, it's kind of highlighted in that one, isn't it? <laughs> I couldn't somehow get that off, but I figured you knew the answer. Yes, it was Dr. Robert Koch, who um, in Berlin uh, has a, there's an institute called the Koch Institute, and uh, in 1905, uh, many years, I think I did the calculation, it was like, 25 or 30 years after he made his discovery about the TB bacillus, uh, the mycobacteria, um, that he was awarded the Nobel Prize, and we're most grateful to him. Now, but what has happened? I mean, once you discover the pathogen, the cause, you know, what has been the history about diagnosing TB? I think most people know that it's been traditionally sputum smear microscopy, And, you know, that in itself in low-resource countries is often the best technology available. Sometimes these aren't even electric scopes. They're, you know, light with a a little reflecting piece underneath the, the stage. But anyway, what has happened? So we had in 1882 identification of the TB bacilli. Um, And sometime uh, around then, the development of a monocular microscope. And uh, towards the end of the 1800s, development of some uh, rentgenology to detect TB. And this particular slide shows just um, a cavitation in the right apex of the lung. 
And then in 1907, the tuberculin skin test was developed. So we're talking like 100 years ago. It's hard to imagine that. And then in mid-1930s, solid culture was developed, used to identify TB. In 1950, the first anti-TB drugs were discovered. In 1980s, uh, short-course chemotherapy, the DOTS, uh, the WHO recommended and uh, encouraged regimen. And liquid culture developed. And then what happened in the mid-80s? Oh, dear, HIV, which really changed the course of many things, and I'll show you that in a moment. And um, multidrug-resistant TB was being detected. And then in this, uh, the last, um, the sort of 2006 to 2010, the development of light-emitting light diodes, fluorescent microscopy and line probe assay, allowing higher processing, higher volumes uh, within labs to be done. And the fluorescent microscopy is something that's really being pushed out. And then, of course, there's binocular microscopes, etc. But anyway, what are the diagnostic limitations of some of the things that are currently available? Well, if you look on this slide, um, look towards the bottom, you know, there's the TST, the tuberculin skin test. And the problem is you can't really distinguish between infection and active disease. And obviously you have to do more than just the TST. So there's some limitation there. I will just mention parenthetically that the reading of the TST is, um, re is irrespective of BCG status. So some people say, oh, well, I had BCG, so you can't really interpret it. No, just read it, um, the induration, not the erythema, and depending on you know, whether it's a 5, 10, or 15 millimeter and the setting, whether it's a healthcare work or a high burden country, HIV negative, positive, et cetera. So there's that. Then chest x-ray. The problem with chest x-ray is like it's a point in time, and you can't look at it and say this is active TV or this is old. You know, is this an old cavity or new, unless perhaps you have serial radiographs and you can make some comparisons um, to that. But it's not a very uh, sensitive. In fact, if you compare sputum smear microscopy to chest x-ray, you do far better in terms of sensitivity and specificity with a microscopy than you do with chest x-ray. Because, you know, TB is a, an imitator of many diseases in a way like syphilis, but the chest x-ray is not necessarily diagnostic of TB. Um, there are line probe assays that uh, require significant lab infrastructure. You'll find them essentially, if they're in country, in the National TB Reference Lab, but not out on the periphery. Again, um, with fluorescent microscopy and LED, much more sensitive than light microscopy, but require much more technical expertise, um, and certainly capital and running costs are much higher. Culture is helpful. It's kind of the gold standard, um, but again, um, it requires training. It requires infrastructure. It requires um, appropriate venting of uh, laboratories. It requires laboratories uh, worker safety issues, um, more complicated. And, of course, it takes weeks and weeks for the TB. I mean, this is like an, a slow, kind of lazy, just getting up in the morning mycobacterium that, you know, doesn't just latch onto the media and start growing like gangbusters, so it takes time. Liquid culture can certainly um, cut that considerably in half, but, again, um, the infrastructure for that is different. And then light microscopy, as I've mentioned, 
I mean, I've, every time I go to a country and go to the lab, I always ask to look at their best slides because I want to see what they're calling positive. I want to see the quality of the smear, the quality of the staining, the quality of the reading, um, whether they've tracked it within their lab registers and in their patient books. There are lots of interesting things you can do just to get um, a qualitative sense of what the quality assurance might be. Um, you know, sometimes I've seen people show me something that they say is positive, and it's just like dust that <laughs> was acid fast. And, um, you know, there's a certain gentle training that needs to be done. I'll, when I get back to the capital, I'll say, you know, I think this particular health facility could use some strengthening and some reinforcement, get somebody out there, and we'll be back. X amount of time later to see how you're coming along with it. So anyway, diagnostic limitations. All right, and a question for you. Which one statement about the treatment of TB disease is true? A, a person can feel much better with treatment, but TB can never be fully cured. B, TB drugs are expensive and are the main reason why people still suffer from TB. C, once diagnosed and given drugs, staying on TB treatment is easy. Or D, TB treatment requires several drugs over several months. I think I hear the correct answer. There you go, D. All right. I mean, people do feel better um, when they start on treatment, um, but they certainly can be cured. And that's, you know, when I work in TB as opposed to HIV, I say, you know, this is, there's a good news, bad news. Okay, you have TB, but it, in many instances it can be cured, you know, and you can be fully back to your life, whereas with HIV it's a lifelong treatment. And TB drugs are free. They, people shouldn't be charged for TB drugs, but for a variety of reasons, that still happens. National TB programs do get free drugs through the uh, Global TB Drug Facility and the Global Fund. Staying on them is not easy. I mean, how many of you have been on an antibiotic treatment for 7 to 10 days and have faithfully done a TID or QID? Um, I have trouble sometimes remembering just to take something, a vitamin, for example, once a day. All right, now the other question is, what is the pipeline history for anti-TB drug development? That is to say, how long has it been since a new TB drug was on the market? Any guesses? A long time, actually. And how about compared to antiretrovirals? Like they're coming out, um, their pipeline is big. And let's just take a quick look at it. So if you look at TB drug discovery, what you'll see is starting in the 1940s, we had streptomycin and PAS. Then in the 50s, isoniazid and pyrazinamide. Uh, then cycloserine as a second-line drug in the mid-50s, canamycin, ethionamide, ethambutol, and, and capriomycin and rifampicin, all of these up until 1963. And then there is silence. Look at this. This is, should be an outrage. 47 years um, without anything actually being out there um, in more than a pilot study or a clinical trial for people with uh, TB to, to take on. And yet, if you look at the antiretroviral drug story, and this is just like from 1987 to 2008, here are 30. I mean, I'm glad that there's all this research. I'm delighted. Um, but there is, you know, when I'm just in my little TB camp, I, I, I'm sorry to see that there's this discrepancy. I would love for the TB drug pipeline to look just like the antiretroviral drug line. So you can see here there are, um, you know, protease inhibitors, um, NNRTIs, et cetera.
And why is that? Because the HIV-AIDS research funding has just been in the billions. If you look at it from, let's say, the early 1980s um, through 2011, it's been $45 billion in cumulative funding. And antiretroviral drugs are expensive. TB drugs are, for the patient, free, and probably a full course of TB first-line drugs is about $10 to $15, depending on the place. Second-line drugs are another matter for multidrug-resistant TB, but it's not an expensive um, drug regimen. Um, but the advocacy voice, and this is where those who are interested in advocacy, communication, social mobilization could play a role, um, the advocacy for HIV drug treatment is much stronger. So anyway, what's new? I want to use the remaining itty-bitty piece of time to just talk a little bit about something called gene expert or expert MTB RIF or RIF for rifampicin. And what it is is a fully automated diagnostic molecular test. Here you see on the right uh, the cartridge being placed into this um, analyzer. It simultaneously detects TB and rifampicin drug resistance, and it gives you results in less than two hours. That is wonderful news. Now, um, and it's really designed for use at the district or subdistrict level of health system. The training for a lab technician for using expert is, you, know, you can do it in a day or a couple of days. Um, and so there is a great push to have this distributed. Now, you know, everything has a plus and minus, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But it's simple. You put the sample reagent, the sputum, into a sample tube, let it incubate for 15 minutes at room temperature. Then you pipette a, the diluted sample into this cartridge, the middle slide here showing the blue cartridge. And then the third step is to insert the cartridge and start the assay. Now, the pros of this are that the sensitivity is close to culture, which I mentioned are gold standard. High specificity, you get sort of a twofer, two for one, you know, if there's TB there, and you also know if there's um, rifampicin resistance. It's fast, it's portable, therefore closer to the patient in a more decentralized setting, easy to use, and there's a low biosafety requirement. You're not having to wear you know, and 95s and some, oh, yeah, I'm coming to that one. Okay, the cost. It's expensive. Um, the Global Fund uh, is working with the developers of the expert to bring down the costs uh, so that if there's purchase involved, the cartridges, which I think cost about 17 to $20 a piece, and the analyzer, which I think costs, I want to say 20 to 30,000. They're trying to drive those costs down. So, and you need infrastructure. You do need electricity. You need computer support. Um, and of course, from a more scientific standpoint, the positive predictive value of the rifampicin resistance depends on prevalence. That's just sort of a given within the epidemiology and biostatistics of PPVs. And then, of course, if they have rifampicin resistance, that doesn't mean they have MDR. They have rifampicin resistance. So, Okay, so now what, as we try to wind down? For you who were in the part one on Thursday, this is um, just a reinforcement. But I want you to think about where you will work, here or abroad, urban or rural. 
Uh, what kind of theme might you be involved in? Do you want to work in prevention, detection, treatment, HIV side? You're just fascinated by drug resistance. Or do you want to work in communication and advocacy? And what level of care? Do you want to work at a Ministry of Health level or more out in the periphery at the community-based level? And what populations do you want to focus on? Women, children, prisoners, outcasts, um, the poor, uh, urban poor, rural poor. And what kind of setting do you want to work in? Do you want to be mostly public health oriented? Do you want to be um, on the medical side of it? Do you want to work in academia, an NGO, the UN? Do you want to work with a government, either your own or a foreign government, or a donor agency, for example, USAID? And the other thing is, can an old dog learn new tricks? You know, can we be innovative in such an old field? So, yes, I mean, you could work in uh, laboratory research or operational research in the field. Maybe you see the injustice about drugs and want to get involved in that, or heaven forbid um, that we don't have a new vaccine coming out. I mean, the BCG is old. It's like over 100 years old. There are multiple strains. Immunity doesn't last much beyond the early school years, and it doesn't prevent pulmonary TB. It's only for extrapulmonary TB prevention. So vaccine work or um, really hot track it with people who are working in diagnostics or mobile health technologies. There are lots of things uh, in terms of cell phone use, communicating data, use of PDAs or iPads, all these kinds of things coming out that help revolutionize how data are recorded, um, captured, and transmitted, or creative arts. Um, there are opportunities for tremendous photography, um, arts and um, communication, song and dance about I did a TV rap song as part of the creative arts just approach to get, a, you know, get the message out. So there are lots of things that um, you could do as your next steps. So where do you go for more information? I would say the first stop is the World Health Organization Stop TV, which is www.stoptv.org. And I have listed on this next slide key documents and websites, which uh, include... Not only are your own government, the USAID TV webpage, but also the International Union, now known as the Union, your Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Global Fund, the Global TV Drug Facility. And um, these will be, I understand, posted on the Mission Conference um, website, so you don't have to frantically scramble these down. So I want to thank you very much, and I think we're ending just a few minutes after the appointed hour. I also want to mention I have brought some TV materials, and for those who were conflicted about going to the trafficking talk, which I'm so glad people are talking about that, I've also brought some trafficking materials. So help yourself. Nothing goes home with me, and um, I thank you again.